Good morning, Boker Tov. Welcome back to our weekly Parsha Perspectives for today. This week we have the privilege of learning together Parsha's Vayesha, continuing with the incredible narratives that begin the book of Bracious, the story of the formation of the first family, a family learning to get along, learning to uh, be able to uh, function as a family with a sense of cooperation and with a sense of loyalty. I want to thank our generous sponsors, dear friends Becky and Avi Katz, and family who sponsored the Parsha series in loving memory of Becky's father, David Grossman, the Nishmas David Menachem Monish. And as well, I want to thank our sponsors today in honor of Murray and Faye Eisenberg, our dear, beloved members, by their loving children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. We love Murray and Faye. They should continue to have good health and happiness and share simchas with their beautiful and wonderful and outstanding family. Okay, as I said this week, we have the privilege of learning Parshas Vayeshev together. Action-packed so much. Also, the week in which Hanukkah falls, we'll try to get to, if we can, some Hanukkah allusions or references in the parsha as well. If you're following inside, it is in the Art Scroll, Stone Chumash, on page 198, page 198. Yaakov lives, he dwells in the land of his father's sojourns, in the land of Canaan. And Rashi famously tells us that Bikesh Yaakov Leshev Beshalva. Yaakov just wanted some peace, some serenity. He just wanted some rest, some menuchas nefesh. His life has been characterized by running, by being on the go, by fleeing, by hardship, the abduction of his daughter Dina, and the um, confrontation with his brother Esav. And all Yaakov wants is some menuchas nefesh, some peace of mind. All he wants is some rest. And yet, nevertheless, Hashem says, rest is for the next world. Rest is for the future. In this world, we're meant to work, to toil. In this world, no pain, no gain. In this world, it is the suffering, the struggle that stimulates the growth and the breakthrough. And therefore, Yaakov was not destined. Eilat told us Yaakov, Yosef ben Shemashvay and the next Pesach tells us, these are the toldos, these are the offspring. This is the progeny. This is the continuity of Yaakov. And instead of then listing all of his children, which is what one would expect, Yaakov has 12 children. Ela told us Yaakov, I'd expect after saying these are his children, you would list the 12. Instead, Ela told us Yaakov, Yosef. We list only one, Yosef. Ben Shvas Reishana, he was 17 years old. Hayaroa es Echav, Batson. And he is a shepherd with his brothers of the flock. Vihu Na'ar, es b'nei Bilav, es b'nei Zilpa, Neshe Aviv. And he is a youth. He's a child. He is a teenager with the sons of Bilah and the sons of Zilpah, who are his father's wives, as we know. And Yosef brings the Dibasam Ra'a El Avihem. Yosef is a snitch. Yosef is a tattletale. Yosef brings the Dibasam Ra'a. He brings the bad or the negative word about what his brothers are doing to his father. And therefore, he alienates himself from his brothers. And he hopes maybe to ingratiate himself to his father, but he's not successful there either. We're going to start off with a Rav Druk, Rav Yisrael Meir Druk. This year in the Parsha class, we've been sharing a lot of the Torah of the great uh, Rosh Hashiva, Rav Yisrael Meir Druk of Yerushalayim, his wonderful Sefer Eish Tamid. And here on this Pasuk, Eilat told us Yaakov, he quotes the Rashi, as Dibasam Ra'am, all the negativity that he saw in his brothers, all the liability, all the deficiency, everything he saw wrong, he didn't keep it to himself. He didn't say, you know what, they've got shortcomings, I've got shortcomings. Uh, I wouldn't want someone highlighting mine, I'm not going to highlight theirs. Instead, what does he do? He brings it to his father. And what does he say? 
What does he accuse the brothers of? What does he see them doing or, or inaccurately see them doing? That Aver Menachai, they're eating the limb of a live animal. This is a biblical prohibition. One of the Shevamits is B'nai Noach. And the children of the Shvachos, his father's co-wives, not Leah's children, but the children of Bil and Zilpah, he's ridiculing, he's mocking, he's denigrating. He's saying they're just slaves, even though they're his father's children. And he even suspected his brothers of licentiousness, of promiscuity, of violating moral boundaries. And because of this, they were struck. He was punished for accusing them of these three significant violations. For, for accusing them of eating a limb of a live animal, the goat we know was shechted. And the fact that he spoke so denigratingly, negatively, and he accused them of being the uh, of being avadim. What happened? He was sold as an evad. Mida keneged mida. And because he accused them of licentiousness, he was relentlessly pursued and he was relentlessly um, uh, propositioned by the wife of Potiphar. So all this is Rashi. Rashi Rashi in the second passage of the parasha, he told us, Yosef falsely accused his brothers of these egregious behaviors and because he falsely accused them of these egregious behaviors, he struggled or suffered something of the like. Where does this come from? Where did Rashi get it? A Talmud Yerushalmi in Peah. That says, What was the negativity that Yosef brought to his father? So the three Tanayim have a debate. What was the negativity that he thought he witnessed that he brings as the Dibasam Ra, as the negative report to his, to his father? So what was his father's reaction? Yaakov hears these accusations. One son comes to the Abba, the Tati, the father, and says, you're not going to believe what I see my brothers doing. You're not going to believe it. You sent them to Yeshiva, and you modeled, and you taught all of us. You brought us all to Avasubanim and Vishinantam. And do you know what they're doing? Ever Menachai and Arias and Lashon Hara. So what does Yaakov do? Yaakov turns to Yosef and says, Lech he turns Yosef around and he says, I have a mission. I have something for you to do. I want you to go. Your brothers have taken the flock. Your brothers are in the field. They're shepherding. I want you to go check on the well-being of your brother, check on the well-being of the flock, and come back and bring me a report. And one can't help but ask, what is going on? Yaakov understands that Yosef has alienated his brothers. Yaakov understands that there's a tension with the brothers. So what does he do? He tells Yosef, no, go check on them. What does he care about the well-being of the flock? The brothers haven't come back. They're in the Shechem area. Maybe he's worried. The revenge. But the flock? Now we know that the righteous care about every penny. Every penny matters. We saw that in last week's parsha. When Yaakov goes back to get the Pachim Ketanim, Yaakov goes to retrieve those small jugs. Why? Because the more righteous you are, not the more you dismiss the value of money, but the more you care about every penny. You understand that these resources can do good things in the world and that we're not entitled to squander or waste these resources. We have to therefore care about them. We have to care about them. But, so I understand that Yaakov was concerned about the, the flock. 
But to go shlom atzon, in the same sense you describe, in the same sense, shlom achicha, shlom atzon. As if equating the two, your brothers and the flock are of equal value, check in on both of them. Venira Lavar says, Rav Drok, that here, Yaakov was embedding, he was implying Musr within the instruction to Yosef to go check in on his brothers. How? Go check on the well-being of your brothers. Shalom, Romez al-Inyan ha'isha. The Gemara in Yavama says that a person who lives without a wife, a person who lives alone, lives without shalom. The peace of mind, the companionship, the notion of continuity is lacking for the person. We bless all those who want to get married. You should be zocha, you should find your shidduch, you should dance at your wedding. You should find that peace and that peace of mind that you search for, that you long for. But the Gemara says that a person who doesn't, until they do, lives without shalom. So the first part is, Go check on the shalom of your brothers. Is embedding an allusion to Yosef and saying, Yosef, go see what your brothers are busy with. Whom are they dating? Who are the shaduchim they're listening to? What are they checking out? Go check the well-being of the tzon. Go check whether they're eating Aver Menachai. Are those animals whole? Are they complete? Or are the brothers that you accused of Aver Menachai? Go check on the tzon. And bring me back a word. Davar is dibur, like dibasam ra'a, like lashon hara. Hashivani davar means bring me back a good word. That when Yaakov sent Yosef to go check on his brothers, he wasn't trying to increase the animosity. He wasn't trying to deepen the problem and the conflict between them, but quite the opposite. He was embedding Musser within this message to his son and saying, go check and you'll see they're not engaged in Arias. Go check and you'll see they don't eat Aver Menachai. Go check and you'll see there's something worthwhile that you could bring back, not dibasam ra'ah, not a negative observation or speech, but rather bring back something positive, bring back a positive message. All that is number one, Rav Druk on the Parsha Ele Toldos. I will tell you that Rav Simcha Burma Peshischa has a beautiful insight. We've shared it in the past where he says, Yosef brings dibasam ra'ah. Yosef brings a negative report. He sees the negative in their brothers. He sees what's missing. Chesronam, they're chesronos. He sees what's lacking. He sees what's missing. He accuses them. And that's why he comes with dibasam ra'ah. He has a negative report for his father. So what does Yaakov do? He turns Yosef around and he says, No, go and lechna re'eyes shlom achicha. Go check the shalom. Says of Simcha Bonu Pshischa, don't read it shalom, but read it shalem. Go see how your brothers are whole. In what way are they complete? In what way are they not lacking? Rav Elimelech of Lezhinsk, the great Noam Elimelech, the great Hasid the Rebbe, the Rebbe Rav Elimelech, he says, you know, the beautiful song, Adaraba, it's a tefillah that he composed that Avram Fried turned into a magnificent song, Adaraba. And in it, he encourages all of us. We ask Hashem to give us the strength not to see, to see uh, what's whole within our friends, below chesronam. Not to focus on what's missing to see what's there. If you see what's missing, then you come with dibara'a, with a negative report. But rather, lechna re'e Go check what is shalem in achicha. Go check what is whole, what is complete, what is virtuous. Go check what is right, and you will connect with that. You will be drawn to that. You will be inspired by that. Now, in this Pasuk, Yosef is referred to somewhat peculiarly as Yosef ben Shvasre Shana, we know his age, Vuhu Na'ar. He's described as a Na'ar, which Rashi tells us Vuhu Na'ar. 
Why is he called a Na'ar? He's a child, he's an adolescent, he's 17 years old. In Florida at 17, you could drive. Maybe elsewhere also in Florida at 16, you could drive. Everywhere at 17. 17 years old, he could drive. So what's a, why is he called a Na'ar at this age? And the answer Rashi says is he's engaged in Maisa Na'aras. Mesakin, Besaro, he's always looking in the mirror doing his hair. He wanted to look cool, he wanted to look in, he wanted to look with it. He wanted to look handsome, he was always looking in the mirror, and he was always fixing himself. And that's a Maisa Na'aras. We call it Na'arashkeit, comes from the word Na'ar. You're acting like an adolescent, an impetulant young fool. Na'ar. He was vain, Yosef. He was consumed by his vanity, he was looking in the mirror. But, the Sfas Emes, the Helege Ger Rebbe, Yudaleva Ger, asks a question. He says, why did Rashi ask here? Rashi wonders, Rashi's quoting the Medrash. Yosef, 17 years old, and we're calling him a Na'ar. Why are we calling him a Na'ar at 17? And we give an answer. But you know where Rashi didn't ask this, says the Sfas Emes? Earlier, earlier. With Avram Avinu, when it comes to the Akedah, the end of Parshas Vayera, Vani v'hana'ar nilcha adko. Avram Avinu says, you, Eliezer Yishmael, stay here. Am Hadoma Lachamor. You stay here with the Chamor, with the donkey. You're a nation that's similar to a Chamor. You're like a nation of donkeys. You stay here. We spoke about it at the end of Parshas Vayera, right? That Yitzchak saw, didn't just see a barren desert. He saw a mountain with a glow, with a heaven. He had an imagination, a creativity of spirituality. Whereas Eliezer and Yishmael, they said, I see a desert. And Avram says, stay here. You're no different than a donkey. All you see is the Chomer, while Yitzchak, my Yitzchak, sees the Tzura, he sees something so much more. So Avram earlier used the expression, Vani Vanar Nelchad Ko. Avram earlier used the expression, Nar. Why didn't Rashi jump all over it? How old was Yitzchak in the Akedah? If Yosef is 17 years old now, and Rashi is so bothered that he says, why does the Torah call a 17-year-old a Na'ar? How old was Yitzchak at the Akedah? He was 37. He was far older than 17. He was 20 years older. So why didn't Rashi ask there, why does Avram call him a Na'ar? So listen to what the Ger Rebbe says. Listen to what the Svasema says. He says, Me also pasuk ein kushya. Sheisham amar zosa Avram avinu abeno be'ene ha'av beno ahuvo hu tamid Na'ar. Kan atori hi shomeres vuhu Na'ar. Lefichah chiksha medrish. Yosef ben shvash sheisham avata omer vuhu Na'ar. Earlier, it was Avram calling Yitzchak a Na'ar. When a father calls his son a Na'ar, you could be 70 years old. And your 95-year-old mother or father will call you kid. Hey, kid, come here. I love you, kid. You could be 70, 75 years old. And if your parent is still alive, they're still going to call you a kid. Avram is calling Yitzchak a Na'ar a kid. That's why Rashi, the Medrash, weren't bothered. Why are we calling a 37-year-old a kid? Because who's the one who's calling him the kid? His father. A father always calls a child a kid. But here it's the Torah itself testifying to Yosef as a nar. If the Torah itself is testifying to Yosef being a nar, then it must be there's something objective. There's something insightful. There's a reason. And Rashi the Medrash give us that reason. Namely, what's the reason? The reason is because Maisa Naras, he's occupied and preoccupied with his vanity, with his looks. This Shabbos we're going to have a parshish, a uh, woman shear at BRS. Shabbos Hanukkah, woman shear, and we're going to talk about of vanity and beauty, and the message of Hanukkah, Yavan, Yavan, we reject Yavan, which is all about the aesthetic, the external, the superficial, worshipping the body, the Olympics, the Greek gods, and yet, the holiday of Hanukkah seems to focus on beauty, the Hidr mitzvah, we have Mahadran, Mina Mahadran, Hidr means beauty, to glorify, so 
Which is it? Are we rejecting beauty or accepting beauty? Hanukkah gives us a philosophy and an attitude to beauty. What is beauty? When is it vain? And when is it valuable? And uh, we'll talk about that. So here, and we'll incorporate this Yosef. Yosef was a na'ar. He was, he was very bothered by his looks. And he looked in the mirror. And that Rashi, the Medrash, calls a Maisa na'aras. Now what happens? The, he goes to check on his brothers. And Pasuk says, Pasuk Dalad, we know that the father Yaakov favored Yosef. He gave him this multicolored coat so that we would have a musical to listen to. And the brothers grew very upset. The brothers said, how could our father favor our brother? How could he treat him better? They saw that their father loved him more. So they hated him. Hate is a very, very strong word. It doesn't say they didn't like him or they couldn't tolerate him or they didn't want to hang out with him or they struggled to love him. It says they hated him. Hate is a very strong word. Hate. They hated. They hated him so much they couldn't even. We spoke in the past to Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra says they couldn't even give him a shalom aleichem. They walked right by him. He came, they came this way. They looked down, they looked away. We're living in such a polarized, divisive time. If someone voted differently than you, if somebody thinks differently, observes differently than you, if somebody um, has COVID restrictions or behavior is different than you, we're unable to even give a shalom aleichem. We're unable to even say hello. That's tragic. That leads to the sinaschinam of Yosef and his brothers. It leads to a yirida to Mitzrayim. It leads to a place of gallus of exile. It doesn't matter how different a person is from us, how their conclusions and their behavior are different than us. We can disagree, we can disagree vehemently and respectfully. But to be unable to even say Shalom Aleichem, to not even be able to, to see the other, that the other is our adversary, that they're positioned as the other, we're all one. That's what began this whole thing. So Rashi says, as we said, all of these, all of these different areas. So back to Rav Druk in the Eish Tamid. Says Rav Druk. First of all, why does this pasuk say? Did I skip? Hold on, hold on. I went to the wrong Rav Druk. Hold on. Sorry, sorry. Now, on the one hand, when you read the Pasuk, it's an indictment of the brothers. What do you mean they carried such animosity? What do you mean they had such hatred? That's intolerable. It's unacceptable. Jews can't help, can't, Jews can't hate other Jews. Look what it leads to. Look at the devastation. Look at the crisis it leads to. On the other hand, Rashi quotes that there's something, um, there's something praiseworthy. It's not only a gnus, it's not only negative about them that they hated, but there's a shvach. And you know what the shvach is? At least they were authentic and genuine. They didn't speak echad bepev echad believe. So many people are disingenuous. So many people are duplicitous. So many people are hypocritical. They give you a hug while they drive that knife in your back. They give you a smile while they speak negatively about you to mutual friends. There are people who are so inconsistent, so duplicitous. Says Rashi, true, they displayed their animosity, but at least they were genuine through and through. They didn't feel one way internally and act another way externally, and that's something which is a shvach. 
What we should feel both internally and externally is love to all Jews. Even the Jews that we don't like, we have to love. We spoke in the past the difference between like and love. We have to love even the Jews that we don't like. But if your person feels attention, at least they shouldn't fake it. They shouldn't lie. They shouldn't be um, disingenuous about it. But rather they should they should be honest. So says Rav Druk, we smile at them and we're cordial to them. And we give them a bracha and a shalom aleichem. And externally we act like we're friends. But people in their heart have a hatred, have an animosity, wish poorly, not well. The brothers, on the other hand, were consistent. Since they hated Yosef, so they didn't have peace. At least they were straightforward and transparent. Look at look at the Chumash, page two hundred in the article Stone Chumash, and you'll note in this pasuk, Perak Lamedzayin pasuk Dalad. In this pasuk, Lo Yachlu Dabro Lishalom, the brothers could not speak peacefully. They could not even give a Shalom Aleichem. How is the word Shalom spelled? You'll notice that the word Shalom is spelled. It's missing a vav. It's written chaser. It's written missing the vav. Shin lamed mem. We pronounce it shalom, but it's missing the vav. Why? Says Rav Chaim Kanievsky. Because kevan shalom shalom ayachaser harisanu also. It wasn't really shalom. They didn't have peace. They had hatred. The reason they couldn't speak peacefully. The reason they didn't get along. They didn't tell him that their shalom was incomplete. So that's Rebchaim Kanievsky's observation. Because they didn't want to be disingenuous, they didn't even speak to him at all. And that's why there's a missing vav, because of what was missing. It says Rav Druk, he quotes his father, Avi Mori, the Drash Mordechai, Rav Mordechai Druk. It's a very interesting halacha. In Hilchos Tishabav, in Rebchaim Simen, Tafkof Nandalad, Sivchaf, Shulchan Aruch tells us that on Tisha B'av you're not supposed to give a Shalom Aleichem. We know that. We give a reminder. Please God, we've observed our last Tisha B'av and we'll never have to observe another one. But last Tisha B'av, you remember that the night of Eichel, well, two Tisha B'avs ago, because last Tisha B'av we were all watching on Zoom. Two Tisha B'avs, we announced at the end of Eichel, when you leave, everyone part from one another, but don't give a Shalom Aleichem. It's not time for a Kiddush. It's not time for a social scene. We don't give Shalom Aleichem to one another. And people ask on the Shulchan Aruch, I don't understand. The whole reason we observe Tisha B'Av is because of Sinas Chinam. Baseless hatred led to the demise of the Beis HaMikdash, led to the being thrust into exile, because we didn't get along. So Davka on the day that commemorates the consequence of not getting along, we should act like we don't get along? We don't say Shalom Aleichem to one another? That day there should be a mitzvah! Tisha B'Av, there should be an obligation. Every Jew, find another Jew. Get up off the floor and go find someone and give the biggest Shalom Aleichem that he ever gave. So why is the halacha, ain't she'el ha-shalom l'chavira b'Tisha B'Av, that you're not allowed to give a Shalom Aleichem on Tisha B'Av? Ubir Avi Mori says the Drash Mordechai Shekevin Shadach Bnei Adam Shnosan Shalom Echad Chavero Ach B'Toch Libam Choshim Machshavas Sin Alav Umedaber Mimo Echad Peh Echad Believe. Because you know what's going to happen? All the faker runies, all the faker I. All the people will walk around and give a Shalom Aleichem because they want to look like the biggest tzaddik. Ooh, I'm the biggest kanakar in the shul. On Tisha B'av, I give a Shalom Aleichem to everybody. I go person by person by person, shaking hands as if we're ever shake hands again. And I give a Shalom Aleichem to everybody. But you know what? 
Half the people I gave the Shalom Aleichem to, I despise. Half the people I can't stand. Half the people I want nothing to do with. I'm just giving a superficial fake Shalom Aleichem. Lachain Amru Chazal, Adif HaDavr Shalayakdimu Klaash Shalom Shalom Biyam Tishabav. On Tishabav, better for everyone to be genuine and transparent. Better to not give a fake Shalom Aleichem than to not give Shalom Aleichem at all. Because as this Rashi teaches us, that the only thing worse than hating someone in your heart is being duplicitous, disingenuous, is hating them in your heart, but acting like you love them with your lips. You have to transform your heart and soften your heart and learn to love everyone in your heart. Learn to love every Jew with your heart and learn to love every Jew also with your words and with your gestures, with your actions. But until then, to be duplicitous is even more egregious, egregious than to only hate in our heart. And based on this Rashi is how the Drash Mordechai understood this halacha of why we don't give Shalom Aleichem on on Tishabav. Continuing. Paraglam Zion Pasuk Tes. Moving right along. So what happens in the story? So um, we have these dreams. Yosef has two dreams. And he makes the mistake. A lot of people have big dreams. But he makes the mistake of telling his dreams to his brothers, of telling his dreams to his father. First dream is the sheaves. And the second dream is the stars and the constellations are bowing down. Now there's a fundamental difference between the first dream and the second dream. I noticed this when I was being Marbesedra, and I was very gratified to see that Rav Druk asks it in his Eshtamid. What's the fundamental difference? Do any of you know? If you are not muted and you could respond to me, I'm sure you would identify it because it jumps off the page. In the first dream, he says we were binding sheaves in the middle of the field. And my sheave, it stood up. My sheave got up. Your sheaves gathered around and they bowed down to my sheave. So how does Yosef perceive himself in his first dream? He is one of the symbols. The sheaves in the dream, he's one of them. And the brothers are bowing down to him. The second dream, what's happening? He's not one of the objects. In the second dream, he's not a star or the moon. He is being bowed down to, and how is he taking a form in the second dream? He is the form of himself. He's the form of Yosef. So which is it? Does he take the form of one of the objects of the dream, one of the symbols of the dream? Or does he take the form of himself? Asks of Zdruk. In the first dream, he's bowing down to Yosef. Yosef sees himself as one of the sheaves. In the second dream, it's It's bowing down to Yosef himself. Like the second dream. Because in the first dream, each of the brothers had a sheaf. So it was very clear, his was labeled Yosef. And it was very clear that the other ones were bowing down to his, which was labeled Yosef. But in the second dream, it's bowing down to a star. What's to say whose star is which? And therefore, it's unclear. But if Druk is not satisfied with that answer of the tour in the name of the Moshe Zekenim. Why not? Just like the sheave could be labeled, the star could be labeled. Just like the sheave could be identified as Yosef's, and that's bowing down to his. So to the star could be identified as Yosef, and then bowing down to him. 
So therefore, Rav Druk offers a different suggestion. So he says, let's understand it based on the inside of the Ramban. The Ramban says that there's a fundamental difference between the two dreams that Yosef has. The first dream, his father and mother are not in it. It's just the brothers bowing down to him. In the second dream, his father and his mother are in it as well. Fundamentally, there's a difference and a distinction between these two dreams. The first dream, they're all bowing down as one. So the Ramban says, how are these two dreams for, for uh, telling what's, what's to come? The dreams actually happen. Again, this parsha can be read very superficially as the story of a family, a seemingly dysfunctional family, learning to become functional, the story of a family, brother-sibling rivalry and animosity and a father's role in favoring a son and how they figure it all out. But there's a much deeper and higher way to understand this parsha and frankly the rest of the parshios of Sefer Bracious. And that is something much more um, transcendent, something happening in the cosmos, something that Hashem is trying to bring about in the destiny of this family, turning into a nation, turning into a people until today. Yosef's dreams are not egotistical, self-centered, maniacal dreams. Yosef's dreams are about the Jewish destiny. So these dreams, says the Ramban, are describing. In the first dream, when the brothers bow down to him, when is that? When the brothers come to Mitzrayim, when he has risen to be the viceroy of Egypt, when he is responsible, he's the secretary of the economy, uh, of the treasury, and they've come to him. And in fact, the brothers all essentially bow down to him. They defer to him. They beg him because he is the one who will be able to sustain them. In the second dream, when his father is included, when is that? It's when everyone comes to Mitzrayim after Yosef has already revealed himself. And now his father is included. So, The first dream is just the brothers. The second dream includes the father and the whole family because it's when everyone descends to Egypt to be able to live there. So based on this, says Rav Druk, based on this understanding of the Ramban, now we can understand. In the first dream, when the brothers are coming down to Egypt, there is no father because it represents when they come down when they're hungry, Yosef hasn't revealed himself. They don't know it's him. And therefore they're bowing down to a manifestation of me. They're bowing down to an expression of me, the viceroy of Egypt. But they don't know it's me. They don't know it's Yosef. But when it comes to the second dream, now Yosef has revealed himself. By the time they come down and bring their father and families, now Yosef has revealed himself. Since in the second dream, it is a reflection of a time when Yosef will have revealed himself, now they bow down, because Yosef has revealed himself. I think it's a very beautiful and very accurate insight. Um, to answer a question, again, that bothered me, I don't know if it bothered you. Why is there this difference between the two dreams? So if Druk explains it based on the Ramban. The first dream corresponds with when the brothers come down without their father and they don't yet know it's Yosef. And the second dream corresponds with when they come down and bring the father and they know it is Yosef. And that's why in the first dream it's they're bowing down La'alumasi to my shiv. And the second dream it's Mishtachavim Li, they're bowing down to me as Yosef, the Yosef who is revealed. Ukeinza Kosovah Abar Benel. 
My friend Mendy will appreciate this. The Abar Benel writes similarly. They were bowing down to the sheaf of wheat. You know why? Because the first dream corresponds to when the brothers come to Egypt to beg for provisions and food. So what are they bowing down to? Not Yosef the person. They're bowing down to the shmorg, to the buffet. They're bowing down to the food. They're bowing down to the sheaf of wheat. Only in the second dream, when they know it's Yosef, and now they're deferring to Yosef as the viceroy of Egypt, only then is it Mishtachavim Li that they are bowing down to me, Yosef, the revealed one. Yaakov sends Yosef to go check on his brothers. We were referencing it earlier. And on his way, Yosef's looking for his brothers, but he gets lost and he finds a man. He finds an Ish. He finds a man. Now, who is this man? Who is this man? The man gives him directions. What is the Pasuk? We're on page 202. A man discovered him, and he was blundering, he was wandering in the field, and the man says to him, What are you looking for? We might talk about this on Shabbos. The Kotzke Rebbe says, Every Jew, when we meet another Jew, the fundamental question is Mativakesh. Are you a Mavakesh? What are you Mavakesh? What do you want? A bigger house, a nicer car, more money? What do you want? More fame, more friends, more followers? What is it that you want? Because what we want says everything about us. And that was the question that this angel asks Yosef. Mativakesh. What are you looking for? What are you asking for? But you didn't hear that because we might talk about it on Shabbos. So if you're here for Shabbos, pretend you didn't hear that. So who is this man? Who is this man? Says Rashi, Ze Gavriel. It's the Malach Gavriel, the angel Gavriel. Because the Pasuk in Daniel refers to the angel Gavriel as Ish Gavriel. Rabbi Salavechik in the Rav Chomesh, the OU Rav Chomesh, writes the following. The Ish in the drama of the sale of Yosef plays an uncanny role. Who was he? Why did he approach Yosef? Torah purposefully, purposely repeats the term Ish prima facie unnecessarily. It could have omitted the term in the second half of the sentence. Right, let's read the Pasuk again. A man finds him. is wandering. And the man asks him. You could have taken out the second Haish. You could have just read the Pasuk. A man found him. And he asked him. Why do I need the word Haish the second time? Moreover, the noun Ish appears in the next Pasuk as well. I'm looking for my brothers. And the man says, and so on. So, even here, the Torah could have left out the word. Why is it repeated? It's as if the Torah unnecessarily repeats the word ish over and over again when it absolutely did not need to. Why does it? What is the message of employing the term, the word ish, over and over again? So listen to what the Rav says. Says Rabbi Salavechik, The repetition of the term ish comes to emphasize the unusual character of coincidences. The strange role played by the anonymous man who knew neither Yaakov nor Yosef. It was tactless on the part of the Ish to approach Yosef. He apparently guessed that Yosef was lost. Then a man found him and behold, he was in the field. Why did Yosef confide in this Ish, an anonymous stranger? Right? What's happening here? It's sort of bizarre. A man walks over to Yosef. Yosef's on his way. He's looking. Maybe he's wandering a bit. But what kind of a stranger walks over to somebody and says, No, where are you going? What are you looking for? What are you looking for? And then the fact that Yosef engages him, and Yosef confides in him, he says, I'm looking for my brothers. How could the man relate to Yosef's cryptic answer to the ten people he had met before? 
It's a strange coincidence that the Ish knew where the brothers moved from Shechem. So Yosef says, I'm looking for my brothers. And he says, oh, your brothers. I know where they went. That direction. Go there. The Torah repeats the term Ish to emphasize that the Ish was not just a man. The Ish was the angel who watches over Jewish history, who has the plenipotentiary of the Almighty, guides its events and pursues its objectives. He met Yosef, and because of this meeting, Yosef's drama became more complex, more puzzling, more awesome. Yosef was hesitant. Ultimately, he simply surrendered to the Ish, to his destiny. The Ish made the decision for Yosef to go to Dosan. In so doing, he sealed the fate of Yaakov and his household and exposed them to bondage, affliction, and loneliness. Yosef acted in accordance with the instructions of the mysterious Ish. Indeed, all the humans involved in the Yosef story acted compulsively, not because they considered their actions sounding good. They were forced by the sheer impact of Jewish destiny and the exorable dynamic of historical realization of the Jewish people to act in the way in which God has planned. Says the Rav essentially that this Ish, this Gavriel, this Malach, there are Malachim that escort us through our own destiny. There are Malachim that have taken us through the chapters of our history. And rather than reject them, and rather than push them off or try to avoid them, one sometimes needs to surrender to them. Sometimes need to confide in them. Sometimes we need to trust them. This Ish is repeated over and over again, says the Rav, to tell us that it's no ordinary Ish. This is not simply a man giving directions, a woman giving directions. This Ish is an angel. And the angel means an expression of God in this world, an ambassador of God. And sometimes life takes us in strange ways. And instead of resisting it, sometimes we need to lean into it and we need to go with it because it's part of our destiny. Yosef's destiny was to find his brothers and to be thrown in a pit and to be sold into slavery. And this angel was sent by Hashem to escort and to enable that destiny to occur. Yosef confides because sometimes we intuit and we know that we have to lean into our destiny and it cannot be avoided. And that is how Rabbi Soloveitchik understands this section. Now we read this pasuk, Matavakesh, this angel Gavriel asks Yosef, Nu, who are you looking for? What are you doing? And what does he answer? I'm looking for my brothers. Tell me where they are. What does the word ro'im mean? Tell me where they are. Shepherding. Ro'im, a ro'a, is a shepherd. Tell me where they're shepherding. Where are they pasturing? Where are they serving as, as pastors? But the Imre Chaim, the vision of Rebbe, you knew we were going to get to an Imre Chaim today, has a pshat I absolutely love. He says, What are you looking for? You look lost. Where are you going? He says, I'm looking for my brothers. I can't find them. Do you know where they happen to be? Ro'im. Now the simple understanding, as we just said, Ro'im means, do you know where they happen to be serving as shepherds? Where are they watching and tending to the flock? But the Imre Chaim says, read it differently. Not Ro'im shepherding, but rather Re'im. Me'lashen Re'us. That same word shepherd has another meaning. You could be a roa, you could be a shepherd, but you could also be a rea. What's a rea? A friend. Hagidan li efohem misro aim. Mihem chavrehem. Beeza chavrusa him yoshvim. The ketzerim is nagim bitinyane chavrusa. Says the Imrechayim, you know what Yosef was saying? I'm looking for my brothers. Would you know who they're hanging out with? Who's their chevra? Who are their chaverim? Who are their reim? Because you learn so much about a person by whom their friends are, who we choose as friends, with whom we hang out how we socialize, how, what is our social circle, how we define ourselves. Do you happen to know who they're hanging out with? We have to choose our friends wisely because we are a product so much of our environment. Certainly while there's nature, there's also nurture. We're a product of our environment. 
So Yosef is not only inquiring where are they serving as shepherds, but with whom are they hanging out? Who are their chavra? Who are their chavrusa? Who are their reim? Hagid danali efo heim roim. That is number one. I love that. I love that. Uh, I would call it pshat. I love that drush. Number two. Es achay anochi mevakesh. I'm looking for my brothers. Says the Imrechaim. He says, achay, my brothers, is an acronym. It stands for Yemei Chanaka Elu. In Alanisim, we describe Chanaka as Yemei Chanaka Elu. Kosh Baruchu Anochi Hashem Lokecha Mevakesh Es Avodas Neiras Chanaka Hakadoshim. Es Achai Anochi Mevakesh. Kosh Baruchu, who's the Anochi? Hakadosh Baruchu. Anochi Hashem Lokecha Shotisich Meret Mitzrayim. When we see the word Anochi, it's a reference to Hashem, to the Almighty. Anochi, what does he Mevakesh? What does he want? He wants Achai, Yemei Chanaka Elu. And we want Yemei Chanaka Elu. Again, this is clearly not the Pshat, but it's a beautiful Hasidish Adrush of the vision of the Imrechaim. Es Achai Anochi Mevakesh. Why do I share it with you? Because if you're like me, I've never been so desperate for some light. We're living in a time of darkness. We're living in a time, third wave, terrible numbers, poor projections, despair, despondency. It's a time of darkness. Achai Anochi Mevakesh. Achai, achai, yemei Hanukkah elu. I'm desperate for yemei Hanukkah elu. Can't wait for this Hanukkah. Can't wait to light the menorah. Can't wait to illuminate the world. Can't wait to look into the lights and see hope and optimism and faith and such a brighter future of an unrolling of a vaccine and please God, a return to some sense of normalcy. We should be able to take out the best of what we learned in the last year and leave behind the worst of what we experienced in the last year and let's see it in the vision because Hanukkah is the holiday of vision. We're not allowed to l'shtamish b'mela l'rosam b'vad. You're not allowed to use the Hanukkah candles. You can't read next to them or count coins next to them. Ela l'rosam b'vad. We look at them. And what do we see when we look into them? That light illuminates, it dispels the darkness. What we see in them, what we see is against all odds. What do we say in Hanira Salalu? Against all odds that we triumphant against an army that was greater in number and greater in strength, a little oil that should have lasted one night, lasted eight. All of these things are against all odds. We are a people who make the impossible possible. We are a people who don't see what is right in front of us. We see with our imagination what can be. And so in this time of darkness and despair, Yemei Chanukah Elu, Es Achai Anochi Mevakesh, Es Yemei Chanukah Elu Anochi Mevakesh. I can't wait for these days of Chanukah to light that menorah and to look into that light and to be able to use the light to illuminate a path to see a brighter, a happier, a better, a better future that lies ahead of us. So, it's Achai Anochi Mevakesh. And he says, I'm looking for my brothers. Why? Because I want to see with whom they are hanging out. Who's their chaver? Who's their friends? Efohem Roim. In 1966, Rav Yechiel Yaakov Weinberg, the Sri De'esh, Sri De'esh was a Rav in Switzerland, the Eretz Yisrael, the great Rav Yechiel Yaakov Weinberg, he wrote the Chuvas, the response to Sri De'esh. He lived 1878 to 1966, I think. And towards the end of his life, he wrote an essay um, called Es Achai Anochi Mevakesh. It was a longing for the non-observant and the observant to get along. And in it, Ben Chiloni Ledati, he describes, he, he rejects the notion that the religious and not religious should be tolerant of one another. 
He writes, Rabbi Chiyo Yaakov Weinberg, and I'm fond of quoting this. He says, you tolerate, he doesn't use these examples, they're mine. You tolerate a bad rash. You tolerate slow Wi-Fi. You tolerate a little traffic. You don't tolerate a fellow Jew. You love a fellow Jew. And in this essay, which he calls, based on our Pasuk, he says, that can't be the bar so low that all we want is to tolerate one another. Jews, religious and non-religious, Orthodox, conservative, reform, the bar can't be so low that our goal is to tolerate one another. The goal has to be to love one another. Es achai anochi mevakesh. And he ends it with the following sentence. Not politeness and not restraint, but our heart. You have to give your whole heart. Hartzig, love. Lo sovlanut v'adivut, ela ava v'achva. Anu mevakshem v'dorshem mikem. We want your love and we want your loyalty. We don't want politeness and we don't want restraint and we don't want tolerance of one another. We want love and we want loyalty and we want to be able to come together as a family. And the name of the essay, I share that with you because the name of that essay is Achai Anochi Mevakesh based on our Pasuk. The Yosef says, I'm being Mevakesh. I'm looking for and I'm longing for my brothers. With whom are they hanging? What says, um, who, who are they and how can I come to, how can I come to know them? The um, good. Let's keep going. Lamed Zayin Chafalaf. So he finds the brothers. He finds the brothers. Every year we mention, and, and I'm sure we will in the next couple of weeks. Why? Why does Yosef, when he finds his freedom in Egypt, not make contact with his father? And one of the suggestions Rav Yobin Nun gave, others reject, is because Yosef's suspicious that his father was in on this. Why is he suspicious of it? Because this pasuk, our pasha, he knows that. His father had a brother, Esav, and his father was the chosen one, and Esav was the reject. His grandfather had, um, his grandfather, uh, Yitzchak, had a brother, and Yishma was the reject, and his grandfather was the chosen one. And he starts to think to himself, maybe I'm the reject. I'm the Yishma, I'm the Esav of our family. And why would Yosef have erroneously concluded that? For very good reason. Because his father just sent him on a mission, a kamikaze mission. What was it? He says, go to your brothers and check in on them. Go to Shechem. Go see how your brothers are doing. And he never comes back. What do the brothers do when he goes there? They see the dreamer come. Oh, here comes that dreamer. Let's go kill him and throw him in one of the pits and we'll say an animal ate him. So Yosef endures this threat to murder him, ultimately thrown in a pit, ultimately sold into slavery. And who put him in that position? Who sent him into that moment? None other than his father, his loving father. So do you blame Yosef if he were to have concluded, I'm the Ishmael, I'm the Esav of our family? In the meantime, Ruvain hears, and Ruvain saves Yosef. How? Let's not kill anyone. There can't be any murder here. Ruvain says, don't, don't kill anybody. No murder. Throw him in the pit and don't touch him. Uh, and, and what was Ruvain's plan? That he was going to come back. He was going to come back to save him, to bring Yosef back where? To bring Yosef back to his father. Says the Eish Tamid on this Pasuk. Ruvain had the best intentions. Ruvain was going to bring him back. Ruvain was going to bring him back. The Medrash says, uh, the Medrash says, 
Zeruven Shehitzel Yosef. In last week's Pasha, Ruven found these Dudaim, these flowers, unclear exactly what they were. They had some fertility power. And that's when Rachel asks Leah, can I have some? And Leah says, you took my husband, you also want to take my Dudaim. So the Medrash and Shira Shirim says that these Dudaim had a pleasant fragrance. And this is a reference to Ruven who rescued Yosef. So what is the connection between Ruven saving Yosef from the pit and Chanukah? What's the connection? We always read this parsha around Chanukah, connected with Chanukah. The Medrash Shir Hashirim actually makes a direct connection between Ruven saving Yosef and Chanukah. What's the connection? Now, Ruvain has a strategy, but he keeps it to himself. If Ruvain had said, look, don't lay a hand on him. No murder on my watch. We're not killing him. Ruvain's the oldest. I'm the oldest. Nobody's killing anybody. Let's save him. Let's bring him home. Let's work it out. We'll go to family therapy. We'll get it done. Ruvain knew the brothers would never listen to him. He'd run the risk. He'd get thrown in the pit. So he had a thought. He said, oh, I need to buy myself some time. They'll never listen to me if I say, let's bring Yosef home. How do I buy myself some time? I know. I'll tell them, throw him in the pit. Now the truth is we know that this pit was no ordinary pit. It was filled with snakes and scorpions. It was a lethal pit. It had lethal animals that could have killed Yosef. But Reuven's intent was pure. Reuven didn't want to throw him in to kill him. Reuven wanted to throw him in to rescue him. So what do you see from here, says Rav Druk? When a person does a good deed for good reason, for good motivation, even if they don't share that with others, Hashem knows. God knows what's in our heart. And therefore the Torah reveals that Ruvain's intent was pure. The Torah could have just recorded that Ruvain said, don't kill him, put him in the pit. We would have never known that Ruvain's intent in putting him in the pit was only temporary, was only to buy some time. But the Torah wants us to know that when we do things for the right reasons, God knows. God understands our intent and rewards us for it. So the same is true with us. Hashem made a miracle with Hanukkah. And if you want to look at it as coincidence, if you want to look at it as simply something unlikely, then you can dismiss it. But the same way here in the Parsha, Hashem publicized what Ruvain did, we publicize what Hashem did for us. It is reciprocal. The same way Hashem rewarded and acknowledged and, and promoted that Ruvain had the right intent and did things for the right reasons, the miracle of Ruvain's behavior, so too we come on Hanukkah, lahodos lahalel, pirsim hanes, we publicize the miracle of what Hashem did for us. Zuya shayechas ben Ruvain shitzaz Yosef, lebein neiris Hanak shonam adlikim. That's the connection between the two. Hashem will let known that we do things for the right reasons, and we make known when Hashem does something extraordinary for us as well. We acknowledge it, and we, and we promote it. Now, there's a beautiful insight by the Alexander Rebbe. The Medrash says in Vayikra Rabbah, listen to this Medrash. Many of you are familiar with it. 
We just mentioned how in the storyline itself, all we know is Ruvain says, put him in the pit. His intent was to come back later and save him. But of course, that never happened. They end up selling him. So the Medrash says, if Ruvain only knew that a Kirsch Baruch was going to write, he was going to author, he was going to include Ruvain's role in the story, then he wouldn't have put him in the pit. He would have been even more dramatic. He would have been more forceful. He would have been more insistent. He would have taken his brother Yosef and he would have taken him home. Ask the Alexander Rebbe, Rebbe of Alexander. He says, honestly, what do you think? Ruvain's driven by his ego? If Ruvain only knew that somebody was going to write a post that was going to go viral about what happened, ooh, then he would have done it very differently. Then he would have done it very differently. What do you think? Ruvain's driven by honor, by kavod? If Ruvain would have known the story would go viral, then he would have been more heroic. The reason to go heroic is because the story is going to go viral. What? Ask Alexander Rebbe, what kind of a person is Ruvain that we're accusing him of being so ego-driven? So listen to what the Alexander Rebbe says. He says, what the Medrash is telling us is not that Ruvain is driven by honor or ego. Not that if Ruvain knew his story would go viral, he would have acted differently. The idea of the story being publicized is not that others would know about it, is that it would be recorded in history and in Torah, and most significantly, it would be recorded for his children and grandchildren to see. If we would only know that the way we behave ultimately can be a model for others, will be learned and seen by others, will be promoted to others, we'd be much more vigilant and judicious, much more careful and considerate in what we do. We wouldn't simply get away with the least or with good enough. We wouldn't cop out and find an easy way out. If we understood the cosmic implications, if we understood the implications in the long term to our own behavior and our own decisions, then we would put in an even greater effort. So one should never make an effort in the here and now. One should never get away with the bare minimum. One should never be a minimalist. One should never um, underachieve because you say, who cares and who's going to see and who's going to know? It, it becomes known. It matters. It matters to Hashem, and it matters on the stage of, of history and of the world, but it also matters to the people around us because it means that we either take advantage or we squander that opportunity to model for them and to make that enormous difference, to make that enormous difference. Okay, we have time for a couple quick more thoughts. A couple quick more thoughts. Um, bum, 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 bum. There's two great ones, but I'm going to skip them for now. We'll go right to Vayimain. One Paraklamites. Let's go all the way later in the parsha. The wife of Pot. Let's end with something salacious. Wake up those who have fallen asleep in the parsha class. This is the part of Chumash which we are skip as kids, and which wakes us up when we become adults. Paraklamites pasaches. Torah tells us the story of the wife of Potiphar, a beautiful woman who relentlessly tries to seduce Yosef, a very handsome young man, and she um, propositions him, and she comes on to him, and she refuses to take no for an answer. And the Torah tells us, She places her eyes on Yosef and she says, Lie with me. Propositions him explicitly. No nuance, no subtlety. And what does Yosef respond? Says the Torah, I'm on page 214 in the article, uh, chapter 39, verse 8. He refuses. And he says to the wife of his master, are you crazy? Look at me. Here in my master's house, he's trusted me with everything. And you're his wife. 
You think I'm going to violate his trust with his money, let alone with you, his wife? Forget about it. And where does Yosef find that courage? So the Pasuk tells us, Vayema'ein vayomer. Vayema'ein vayomer. He refuses, and then he, and then he says. What is this connection? Vayema'ein vayomer. Says Rabbi Soloveitchik. Above the Hebrew word for, and he refused, what is the trump? What is the cantillation? What is the trump? What is the musical note above the word Vayema'ein? The answer is, it's a shashelis. It's a very unusual trump. Only appears a handful of times in the Torah. Vayema'ein is a shashelis. Shashelis means Vayema'ein. Sorry that you had to hear that. It's a, it's a chain. That's the trump. It's, it's threefold. And it symbolizes that the two words Vayema'ein and Vayomer, he refused and he said, are distinct and separate. Yosef's refusal and explanation do not constitute a cause and effect verbal relationship. His refusal stemmed from the unbroken chain of previous generation, the Shashelis, his genealogy, his patrilineal descent, which impelled him to declare his refusal to be seduced. The word Vayema'in is an expression of unwillingness, of demural without any reason. This unwillingness and obduracy surfaces instinctively. It is the characteristic of the Jewish people throughout the millennia. Do you know where Yosef found the courage, the fortitude, the tenacity, the resilience to refuse? Here he is in a foreign land, far from his family, far from his home country, far from a place where he has to care about his reputation. And there's a beautiful woman who's propositioning him. And he's a young man. He has every reason in the world to give in. And yet he finds the courage and he finds the resolve to reject her advance. Where did he find it? Says Rabbi Soloveitchik, the answer is in the trup. The trup above the word is a shashelis. Shashelis means a chain. Yosef understood he was a link in the chain. And when he saw himself as a link in the chain of the people who came before him and those who will come after, it gave him the courage to do the right thing. He couldn't break that chain. He was a link in the chain. He was the son of Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. And he was going to be the father of Ephraim and Menashe and the future of the Jewish people. And by seeing himself as part of a shashelis, as part of a chain, that gave him the courage of Vayema'ein. It gave him the courage to be able to refuse. And says Rabbi Soloveitchik, that unwillingness is the characteristic of the Jewish people throughout the millennia. We've wanted to throw in the towel. We've wanted to give up and give in. Whether it's to our enemies and adversaries who are persecuting us, or whether it's to the nations like the one we're living in now, who welcome us to assimilate and to drop our identity, we've been ready to give up and give in. Vayima'ein. We have to refuse. And where do we get the courage to refuse? Shashelas. By remembering that we're part of a chain, we are a link in the chain, and we have to act that way. But I'll end today by telling you another insight. Vayima'ein. Where did he get the courage from? Vayima'ein. This comes from Rabbi Yechezko, the Shinever. The Shinever says the following. So why it says with the shashelas? And if you look in the Torah, if you look in the Chumash, there's a line, there's a pause between the word vayimain and vayomer, and then pause, and only then vayomer. It should have been right away. He refused, and he said to her, "No way." Why is there a pause in between? So he says the following: because what is vayimain? The word vayimain to refuse is the same root of the word emuna. Where does one get the courage to refuse? Because you have to spend a moment, more than a moment. The shashelas, this cantillation, is threefold. You have to meditate three times, three minutes, on emuna. 
Vayimain. You have to think about that there's a God and there's a creation. I'm here for a reason. He has expectations of me. He created me and I'm capable and I have the ability to overcome. And I know the difference between what's right and what's wrong. And that's why there's a pause and break between Vayimain and Vayomer. Because before he found the courage to answer her back, before he found the words to refuse her and to reject her, Vayimain, he needed to first spend a moment in Emunah. Reflecting on Emuna, meditating on Emuna, leaning into a sense of Emuna in Hashem, because that's what gave him the courage ultimately to be able to reject her advance and to refuse. We need to lean on our Shachalas, we're all a link in a chain. We need to lean into our Emuna, and that will give us the courage as well. Have a great day, everyone. Stay happy, stay healthy, and stay holy.